But they also want me to ask you to pray for Pastor Stromboli. <laughs> Pinocchio, Stromboli. That's what I do in the front row when things are happening. Let's open up our Bibles this morning. We're in the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 10. We uh, return to our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke after the holidays. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, we'll read through verse 37. Look at the story of the Good Samaritan. May have been attacked by Monstro, but I... Never. <laughs> I'm pretty up on my Pinocchio. That was, that was one of my favorites. I think Stromboli was Italian. He was an Italian gypsy, which is a really good kind of gypsy to be. But. All right, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. They stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for the fact that you can put these complex subjects in such simple terms. Terms that all of us can understand and then apply. And not only apply, Lord, but apply in the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so today, Lord, we don't want to get caught up in too many uh, unusual details. We just want to go and do the things that you've called us to do in the love of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. What's the difference between God and a lawyer? Don't think too hard about the answer because it is a lawyer joke. I'll give you the punchline a little later. Jesus was confronted by a lawyer. You're told that the lawyer had sinister motives for questioning Jesus. He wanted to test Jesus. The word for test has a negative suggestion. It could be translated, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted Jesus. He asked a leading question, hoping to catch Jesus in some contradiction between the law of Moses and Jesus' own teaching. The law of Moses stated, we read it in verse 27, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. That simple statement had become the basis for a complex debate among lawyers and religious leaders. They focused on the one word, the word neighbor, and they asked the question, who is my neighbor? Until you read Jesus' response, their question seems appropriate. After you read Jesus' response, their question seems absurd. You shouldn't want to limit the people who qualify as your neighbor. You should desire to enlarge your heart by being a neighbor to everyone. Jesus gave more than an answer to a specific question. He gave a perspective on how to read and interpret the entire word of God. You should read and interpret the word of God in a way that enlarges your heart to treat others the way God has treated you. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, you're practicing law when you ask, who is my neighbor? And number two, you're practicing love when you ask, whose neighbor am I? Let's start off in verses 25 through 29, where we'll see that you're practicing law when you ask, who is my neighbor? I should explain that lawyers in the New Testament were not men who practiced law before a judge defending or prosecuting those who were accused of crimes. They were men who studied and taught the law of Moses and the traditions of the rabbis that were based on the law of Moses. They were biblical scholars, experts in the study of the law. Scholars and their scholarship can be awfully intimidating. Smart guys and gals put you in your place. They can embarrass you with their big words. They can intimidate you with their verbal judo as they put you in their place. Have you ever talked to really smart people? They're, you know, what did he just say? Now, none of that makes them right. We're not against good, solid scholarship. We love it. We depend upon it. We depend upon it to keep us from error. But scholars and their scholarship must approach the Word of God correctly in order to come to correct conclusions. As a hobby, you know, I like to watch these Discovery Channel things about the Bible just to see that I still have a sin nature because I get so mad watching these things. And these real intellectuals, these guys with all the degrees after their name, they, they always ask the wrong questions, or at least they start off with the wrong suppositions. They suppose that the Word of God is not inspired, that it is not the Word of God. And then they go from there. And so they, they come to all these weird conclusions about who Jesus was and what he did and where he got his ideas to be a revolutionary and all of those kinds of things. And it, it drives me crazy. But if you talk to those people, they seem so smart. And they put you in your place. There's kind of an elitism about them. You know, there's a, a big divide between smart people and then the rest of us, which are just, you know, out here living the real life. And so that doesn't make them right, but they need to just approach the word of God correctly. And as we'll see, you can go astray by asking the wrong question, no matter how smart you might be. And so let's pick up the story in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyers would often discuss and debate points of biblical law publicly while the unlearned folks listened to them. It was not unusual for the lawyer to ask Jesus a question about the law. It's just sad that his motives seem to be impure. His initial question is one that you should be asking. 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? We are all sinners, and worse than that, we are dying sinners, and sinners who are going to be judged after we die. Another way we could ask it is to just say, what must I do to be saved? The vast majority of people on this planet go through life asking other, less significant questions. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And any number of other questions that occupy our minds on a day-to-day and moment-by-moment basis that have nothing to do with eternity. We must ask the lawyer's question of our own soul and of others that we care for in terms of their eternal life. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Now, don't miss the significance of this. Here was Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, the living word of God. Yet when asked a question, he referred back to the Bible. The Bible is our only rule for faith and practice. In it, we will find everything we need for life and godliness. And so Jesus is giving us a, an example People want to ask a question about something, refer them back to something that has been written in the Word of God. And not only did Jesus refer back to God's Word, when asked a question, He often responded by asking a question as He does here. Sometimes the best answer that you can give someone is a better question for them to be asking. And and, and this is so important because... We certainly have answers. Jesus is the answer and the Bible is full of answers. And Peter says we want to be ready to give an answer to every man that asks the hope that is in us. And so don't get me wrong. It's not that we uh, don't want to give people answers. But a lot of times the que- when people ask us a question, rather than give them a direct answer to the question, sometimes their question is the wrong question to be asking. And we need to ask them a question in response. One of the most famous questions that people ask, something terrible or tragic happens, and and it's on everybody's lips, why did God allow that? And then we as Christians, we scramble to, you know, try and come up with an answer, and some of our answers are off the mark, and, uh, you know... this tsunami that's happened. Why did God allow that? I've had Christians, I've heard Christians say that it was God's judgment on those people. I'm not ready to say that. And you know what? My answer is, would you have been ready for that? That's a better answer. It's too late to really worry about why God allowed it or what happened there. It says, hey, would you be ready for that? That's the only real question that persists. And so a lot of times we have to redirect people's thoughts to the right question so that they're thinking about eternity the right way. The question, why would God allow that? It presupposes that God is angry, that God is evil, that God doesn't exist, that he's not all powerful. It's a presupposition. It's a a leading question like this question that the, the lawyer asked. It's the wrong question. Because you and I know that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's the position that we minister from. Why did God allow that? We live in a fallen world. And every day that goes by, there's going to be more and more terrible disasters on a personal level and on a global scale. As God in his long suffering waits for people to come to know Jesus Christ as their savior. 
But there comes a point in all of our lives when that moment is past. Is appointed unto men once to die, and then after this comes judgment. And so we want to sometimes ask people questions. This is kind of confusing sometimes in counseling. People ask you a question, you ask them a question back. It's almost like a joke routine. But a lot of times, you know, don't be on the spot like you have to have the answer. Just think about whether they're asking the right question. And a lot of times you'll find and you'll see that people are not asking the right question. They're asking a question that already has the wrong answer and they're never going to be led into the truth by doing that. And so in verse 27, he answered Jesus' question and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer quoted from two passages, one in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the other from Leviticus chapter 19. His answer was the standard and the correct response to this question. Verse 28, Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. If you could keep the law, you would have eternal life. The problem is that no one can perfectly keep God's law. It sets an impossible standard, a standard of perfection that is unattainable. The law is designed to show you how far short you fall and how much you are in need of saving. Now, here comes the $64 million question designed to stump the Savior. Verse 29. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, in my mind, I see him folding his arms and smiling. Because... There was a belief among the lawyers that there was no biblical definition of who was to be considered your neighbor. Hey, these guys were smart. They studied the word of God. They were all over the law of Moses. And they studied the rabbinical tradition and everything that people said about it. They were popping in cassettes all day. I mean, they were just going for it. They knew everything there was to know about this subject. And there was no concrete answer that they could find anywhere that made sense in terms of who was your neighbor. Now, since there was some confusion about who is your neighbor in their minds, then the best you could do was keep the law to the best of your ability. In other words, as long as you were trying to keep God's law, loving the folks you considered your neighbor, well, then you would be accepted by God. And so you'd look out and say, well, you're my neighbor. You're not my neighbor. I like you. I don't like you. And so as long as I'm defining neighbor for myself or it's undefinable or I think it is, I can justify myself and think that I'm all right. And that's what justify himself means. It means the lawyer wanted to show that he was, in fact, keeping the law to the best of his ability. And I believe probably at this point he thought he had stumped Jesus because Jesus hadn't really defined for him who is my neighbor now this question who is my neighbor puts all the responsibility on others to act in ways that deserve your loving response it's reading the bible and then looking at others and saying do you qualify as my neighbor the opposite is true as well you wouldn't need to show love to those who do not deserve it according to your own definition of who is your neighbor This way of thinking invited ethnic prejudices like the Jews had against all Gentiles and against groups within their own gene pool and probably gypsies. It was quite simply the wrong question to ask. Now, before we look at the right question, there's an important lesson to be learned. 
we also have a tendency to read God's word and ask wrong questions. So let me bring this into our homes. Here's some scripture. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your own husband as unto the Lord. When you read those words, what questions do you ask? It's going to sound odd at first, but a lot of times I think we ask, Lord, who is my husband? Lord, who is my wife? And here's how we do it. We look and we say, now, Lord, my wife is not acting in a godly way. She's all hormonal. If, if I knew who my wife was, then I would gladly love her the way you love the church. But Lord, this can't be what you have in mind. Lord, who is my husband? I mean, really, who is he? Because I haven't seen him in weeks. All football season, he's been gone. Or he's in the garage, or he's with his buddies, or whatever, and he's a buckethead when he's around. And Lord, if my husband were anything like, if he even resembled a husband, then I would submit to him. And, and really, it's funny, but we're saying, well, wait a minute now, I see what you want me to do, Lord, but who is my husband? I mean, if he's my husband, if my wife is acting like a wife, then I can pull this together. And we laugh about it, but you know it's true, that's the only reason you're laughing. It strikes home. We ask those kinds of questions, not just about our husbands and wives, but whenever we put the responsibility on others to act in ways that deserve our loving response. Well, who's my boss? Is it this guy that's grinding me into powder, won't give me a raise, puts me on overtime? All I have to do is say I want to be off on Sunday and I work every Sunday for the rest of my life. I mean, is it that guy? I mean, when is he going to act like a boss so that I can love him? And, and we have that kind of a, an attitude sometimes. Instead, we should read those passages and ask, whose husband am I? Whose wife am I? In other words, Lord, what is it to be a husband? Regardless of my wife, regardless of anything else, what, what, are, what can you do in me and through me? What can I do to show the love of Jesus Christ for this person? Forget what the other person is doing. Forget the source of it, the cause of it. Forget all of that. Lord, how can I humble myself and be a neighbor to that person? Am I letting the Lord lead my life to respond towards my spouse in the way that shows his love? There are too many Christian lawyers, not the ones in courtrooms, but in life. Too many of us are practicing law when we should be practicing love. And that brings us to Jesus' point, verses 30 through 37. You're practicing love when you ask, whose neighbor am I? The parable of the Good Samaritan is one of those passages universally known on the planet. People might not really even know that it was Jesus who gave this story, but it's almost everywhere you go, people have heard this story. I'd like to suggest that it might not be a parable, but a true account of an incident that actually occurred. Here's a couple of reasons why we think that. First, Jesus never said it was a parable. He didn't say, let me tell you a parable. And he used some very specific language. And then second, Jews might not have received this story as a parable. They would have argued that no Samaritan would ever act that way towards a Jew or that a Jew would rather die 
than be helped by a Samaritan. And so, uh, you know, if Jesus is telling a parable, as soon as he says the word Samaritan, these people would have been up in arms. They would have stopped their ears and started screaming. Something similar to this happens in uh, the book of Acts when Paul the Apostle is being torn apart by a crowd there and the guards, the temple guards come and they protect him and they're taking him away. And he says, hey, I want to address the crowd. And they think, all right, it's your funeral, buddy. And so he starts talking and he's preaching to them. Everything is fine until he says the word Gentiles. And then the crowd goes crazy and they're trying to kill him because of their deep-seated prejudices against Gentiles. So it's possible that this would not have worked as a parable. And so it's more likely that this is a, something that had happened probably recently that they would rather forget. Samaritans were the descendants of Jews who had intermarried with their Assyrian conquerors some centuries earlier. The Jews who had not intermarried considered them a defiled, mongrel people. They had no dealings with them. And likewise, the Samaritans despised the Jews. So this was the most unlikely possible situation. Jesus now reported the story, verse 30. Then he answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves. They stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Historians tell us that as many as 12,000 priests and Levites lived in the vicinity of Jericho when they were not serving on their rotation in the temple at Jerusalem. The priests were in charge of the temple rituals and sacrifices. The Levites were their assistants. Now, here's something I didn't tell you earlier, but that many of you remember from your study of the Old Testament. Every morning and every evening, devout Jews recited this passage from Deuteronomy in full. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And they would go on through the rest of the opening verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6. The priest and the Levite might have also worn on their forehead or on their forearm a small box called a phylactery which contained those verses from Deuteronomy. And so here they were walking along the road. They were fresh from serving and from morning devotions. They would, have, they would look forward to their evening devotions where they would recite these words again. They were carrying their Bibles, so to speak, in these phylacteries. When presented with an opportunity to apply God's word, they practiced the law rather than simply being led by love. Who's my neighbor? Gosh, I wish I knew the answer to that. But since I don't, I'll just walk by. Now, the priest passed by on the other side because he didn't want to risk becoming ceremonially unclean. There was blood. He could see that. And the man might even be dead. The priest who came into contact with blood or death could not continue in his ministry until he went through a ritual of cleansing. The priest put the laws regarding his own ceremonial cleansing ahead of his responsibility to love his neighbor. Churches sometimes do something similar when they elevate and emphasize a particular doctrine or practice over everything else. 
And, and week after week after week, there's one thing that they hammer on and, and man, this is what you have to do and this is exactly how you have to do it or else you're not saved. One example would be baptism. Christian churches get way into baptism, the precise mode of baptism, the precise words that need to be spoken when you're baptized. Churches that teach that you can't be saved at all unless you're baptized in the proper manner. And when you meet people, sometimes they, they and you say, uh, you know, instead of asking them if they know Christ, these people say, have you been baptized? And, and baptism becomes more important in a sense than salvation. Or if you say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, well, wait a minute. When and how and where and by whom were you baptized? Uh, gosh, and then you explain it and they... We're just so sorry. We're so sorry that you think you're a Christian. Because you, you just... What kind of a baptism was that? Then there's cultic groups. There's a group, the uh, Jesus only, or the oneness Pentecostals are called by some. They believe because of some uh, fancy footwork in the book of Acts that you can only be baptized in the name of Jesus only. And so they'll come and they'll say, you know, have you, are you a Christian yet? Yeah. Were you ever baptized? Sure. In whose name were you baptized? I always say, I don't know. It throws them a little bit because they have this canned presentation. They say, well, how can you not know? I said, because I was underwater at the time. <laughs> I don't really know what was going on up there. But they'll tell you if you were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that you're not a Christian. You're no, you weren't baptized correctly. You can only be baptized in the name of Jesus only. And, uh, and I'm telling you, man, you go to these churches and week after week after week after week after week, that's all they talk about is that one thing. In the meantime, there are people who come through those groups, the Christian churches and even some of the cults looking for God. And, and instead of sharing the simple gospel with them, they get them off on this tangent of, of this particular. And it's not just baptism. There's many other things that we could talk about. Don't be that way. Now, we're not told why the Levite looked and then passed by on the other side. He may have seen the priest pass by the victim, or he may have known that the priest did so. Either way, he was curious, maybe even wanting to be helpful, but he followed the example of the priest, and he passed by. We want to be careful to set a good example and to not follow a bad example, and to, to let the Holy Spirit lead us into what we ought to be doing for folks. In verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I'll repay you. Without any hesitation, motivated by compassion, the Samaritan helped the wounded traveler. There were no first aid kits, no knuckle bandages and all the cool stuff that they have now. And so in order to make bandages, he would have had to probably tear the hem of his own garment or some other garment that he was carrying. Oil was an ancient treatment for wounds. He probably gave the wine to drink or he may have poured it as an antiseptic over the wounds. The point here is that he shared what he had and it was valuable to him. All of this while still himself in danger of the thieves. All of this while himself on a journey 
allowing himself to be tremendously inconvenienced. There's just nothing more inconvenienced than coming across a half-dead naked person. I mean, it, it's that's just, that's about it. You know, almost anything else you can, well, you know, how long is this going to, this, okay, flat tire, dead battery, half-dead naked person. Oh, man, this, this is all day. I mean, you know, sometimes I get called out as a chaplain and, and, uh, and I can usually tell, I say, well, honey, this is, this is an hour, honey, this is an all day. I mean, this is, this is all night, all day, I'll tell you that right now. And so this was a big one. And then arriving at an inn, he shelled out two days wages and additionally told the innkeeper to keep a running tab. And when he came back, he would pay for it. It's like giving somebody your credit card. Identity theft. I could never do that, you know. So, but it's, it's very interesting. And so verse 36, Jesus, I, I, I just, Jesus has got to be just smiling and just, you know, he's got this guy right where he wants him. He says, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. I like that because he can't even say the Samaritan. He, he just won't even do it. The answer to this, the easy answer would be the Samaritan. But he says, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, well, go and do likewise. There was only this one possible answer to Jesus' question. More importantly than that, Jesus really had changed the original question. You shouldn't ask, who is my neighbor? You should ask, whose neighbor am I? When you ask the right question, then the responsibility is on you to love people with God's love, even if they're not so lovely, even if they're your enemies. And it enlarges rather than shrinks your heart. And it's a beautiful thing. I've watched people, sadly, over the years who were absolutely on fire serving God until they started asking some of the wrong questions. Typically, you discover a centuries-old debate in Scripture. Now, if you've been a Christian long enough, and it doesn't take very long, you know that there are some issues that Christians disagree on. They're significant issues. I'd never say they weren't. They're very significant. One that comes to mind always is the doctrine of election. How do people get saved? Who gets saved? Is it just a certain group of people? Is it the whole world? I mean, you know, how does all that work out? And Christians have been split for centuries over this issue. I've taken a new approach to questions like that, and, and I don't mind that people think I'm stupid for doing it, because I know that I'm smart. If I'm, if I'm studying something that has been a debate among scholars, smart guys, guys that are way smarter than me. By the way, let me step back and say, you have to assume that a lot of these guys are smarter than you. I know when you're a young Christian, you think you're going to solve everything and that you know more than these guys. Smart guys. They had nothing to do, no video games, no television. They just sat around being smart all the time. Smart guys, hundreds of years, centuries of debate among really brilliant men have led to no solution to those questions unless you just jettison a whole bunch of scholarship and a whole bunch of Bible verses and say, forget you guys, I'm, gonna, I'm going with this. And, and, and so there's no answer to some of those questions. But I've seen people who just 
you can see their brain, it's just smoking. There's smoke coming out of their ears. They have to know or think that they know. And so they throw in with one group of scholars and they say, this is it. Now, that in itself isn't even as bad, but then that's all they want to talk about. You want to talk about Jesus? No, no, not unless it's this Jesus. Not unless it's the Jesus I have in this package of theology that I want to talk to you about. You want to lead people to Christ? No, no, we need to get Christians to believe what we believe. Forget about the lost world. We don't even know if they're savable now. We just need to get Christians on board with our doctrine. And it's, it's a terrible tragedy. It's a distraction. You're asking the wrong question. And whenever you ask the wrong question, you come to these wrong conclusions. If you find yourself being limited, if you find your heart being made Grinch-like and smaller... Get with it, people. (laughs) Then you're asking the wrong questions. You can always ask the wrong questions and end up practicing the law, justifying yourself. Instead, ask right questions and practice love, knowing that you've been justified by God. You've been saved by God and set free to be a channel and a conduit of His love. So what's the difference between God and a lawyer? God doesn't think he's a lawyer. Get it? The lawyer thinks he's God. Get it? Okay. It's a joke. Practicing law when you should be practicing love is no joke. If your scholarship leads you to act like the priest or the Levite in our story then you are asking the wrong questions and coming to the wrong conclusions. Now I want to add something. The Samaritan could have benefited by better scholarship. There's a passage in the Gospel of John, it's in chapter 4, where Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman by the well. And as their conversation progressed, she asked some theological questions about the differences between Samaritans and their religion and Judaism. And Jesus let her know that the Samaritans were off base that they were not really worshiping correctly. And so I only say that to say this. It's never a matter of either or. It's not a matter of giving up scholarship so that you can be more loving or, or, or vice versa. We want to always speak the truth in love. It's, it's a combination of the two. Our study of God's Word has to be accurate. It needs to be based on the original languages and the original culture and what was really going on and what words really mean what they meant then and what they mean now i mean we can't get away from scholarship and we shouldn't want to but that accuracy should always stir us up to ministry and to love others and so the key is to ask the right questions when you read and study god's word and really maybe the key is this to know that when you study god's word It's God's Word that is studying you. It's that the Word of God is revealing your heart, showing you the love of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ, the mercy, the forgiveness, the compassion of Jesus Christ so that you can enlarge your heart 
And you'll know this is happening when you find yourself asking, Lord, whose neighbor can I be today? Whether I'm at home or at work or at school, wherever I am, Lord, whose neighbor can I be so that someone can see that you came into the world to save sinners? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the good Samaritan. And for Jesus, the way that you tell these simple stories, talk about smart guys. Lord, you're God, and you could certainly put anyone in their place. But instead, you refer back to the word that we can read, and you ask simple questions, and you tell even simpler stories so that we might be led by the Holy Spirit to correct conclusions. How we thank you, Lord. You're so good. You're good beyond our description. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who asks the right questions and who asks other people to ask the right questions and that we would know we're doing it because our hearts are being enlarged, our ministry is being enlarged. We're seeking to reach out rather than to restrict. Anytime we start to get restricted, Lord, and are excluding rather than including, I pray that you would adjust our hearts so that the gospel could increase, so that more could know that you are coming. Lord, hundreds of thousands of people died in just a few moments or will die in the aftermath of what happened. It is a tiny fraction of what will take place in the Great Tribulation. And yet, Lord, you've, you've told us it's coming. You've warned us the gospel is out there. And I pray that people would understand your love and your grace. Rather than question you, they should question themselves, Lord. What am I doing to inherit eternal life since I'm going to die maybe instantaneously? Help us, Lord, to compassionately and with love redirect hearts to the right questions. We thank you and praise you this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together after the service. Uh, And even while we're singing, you can come down. Some of our guys will be here to pray with you. If you have something on your heart that you want to share, a need in your life. Maybe you're here today, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You know you're not saved. You're not ready to die and go to heaven. Then come forward so that we can pray with you and pray a prayer that leads you to Jesus Christ. May God bless and keep you in Jesus' name. Amen.